between 15 and 16. Now, how far we get into that kind of depends on uh, how um, how interesting class is. So if it's not very interesting, we'll probably finish all of that. And if it is somewhat interesting, a lot of questions and stuff, we may not even get to John. So we'll see how it all goes down. Uh, we've got some big topics and we've got some uh, some interesting aspects and in how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit promises the Holy Spirit, talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's so many different things that we're going to be covering this morning. Um, but let's go ahead and dive in with regards to Jesus's reference to the Holy Spirit being given. This is the first time we have this expressed. This is Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Um, we will back up just a little bit so we can get some of the context. Um, this is uh, Jesus after he gives in the Gospel of Luke the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you can see that at the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, and then he uh, continues to address the kind of reality of interpersonal relationships uh, and showing the, the depth that human relationships have uh, contrasted with the depth that the relationship God has with his people in the coming age. And so it's going to be kind of an interesting thing. Um, so let's back up to verse 5. Luke 11, verse 5. He said to them, which of you has a friend who, who has a friend will give to him uh, at midnight? Excuse me, I can't read. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And will he answer from within? Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are uh, with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, he's just, okay, begrudgingly giving him some bread. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That verse is always taken out of context. It's addressing this reality that if God has called us friends, then he will not ignore our request. Doesn't mean he will grant the request at all times. It just means the Lord hears us. Um, uh, it will be, uh, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be open. And here's another depth of uh, interpersonal relationship. Verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give uh, him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? In other words, something for sustenance, something that is good, broadly expressed. Uh, fish and eggs were the main staples of food next to bread in this culture. And snakes and scorpions were the main, uh, shall we say, enemies of this culture. I would imagine if they had lots of spiders in the Middle East, that would be right here. Uh, I hate spiders. I don't mind so much uh, snakes. Verse 13, he says, uh, contrast this with your relationship with the Lord. If you then who are evil, and there he's referring to friends and fathers, you just on the very basic are natural evil. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, much has been made of this verse that it does not mean. Much has been made in more um, charismatic settings where uh, salvation is somehow separated from the Holy Spirit's giving. And so as a Christian, you need to ask for the Holy Spirit and uh, everything will do much better. That's not what this is referring to. What this is referring to is Jesus is expressing in the coming age here of what is about to transpire with Jesus's death, burial and resurrection the relationship of God is going to change with his people. 
right? The Holy Spirit, as we have seen for millennia, has been interacting in very sporadic and special, unique cases. We have someone like Samson or David or Jeremiah or, or something. It's always unique. It's always odd. It's always um, in some way out of turn. And yet what Jesus is expressing is there's coming an age, there's coming a time where it will be easier for someone to ask the Lord for the Holy Spirit than for a son to ask his father for an egg. That's kind of remarkable because what he is expressing is this is not going to be something that is so unique that it's never seen or that we see 500 years without it. It's going to be that this is going to be an everyday occurrence that the Holy Spirit will be given to those who come to the Father. Now, we haven't seen that yet. At this time period in history where we're discussing, there's only two people in the world with the Holy Spirit. That's John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And so if you're in the audience thinking about this, you're obviously knowing this is not talking about today, but there's, there's this buildup of anticipation. Something's about to happen that's going to enable such a thing. Now, we've talked about the Holy Spirit all the way from the book of Genesis, all the way now we're finding ourselves in the Gospel of Luke. We have seen that there was many different ways that the Holy Spirit interacted with people. Um, David was the most unique uh, but there is multiple ones that were uh, emphasizing one aspect or another of, of the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and here Jesus is expressing to this crowd that you will experience a time, even in their own lifetime, where the Holy Spirit will be freely given to all who ask. They must ask the Father. And it must come from the Father. This is not something that we're going to earn. This is not something we're going to find. The Holy Spirit is not someone that we will seek out and make happen. We will not go to a training class and figure out how to activate the Holy Spirit. None of those things. The Holy Spirit will be given. It's passive. When we talk about that, one must wonder, why is it that God didn't just do this from the beginning? You ever wonder that? Why didn't God just give the Holy Spirit to Adam and Eve after they believed on him and clothed themselves in the skins and uh, were atoned for that one sin? Why not the Holy Spirit then? It's an interesting mind game. Let's go through it a bit. Yes, ma'am. Because he wanted people to search him out in the Bible. Well, I guess they didn't do it, but I mean, going to synagogues, hearing the word. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> And in other words, it was, it was the constant speaking of the word that gave the Holy Spirit. Yeah, oh, so can you hand that pile of printed things to Rick? He's looking for them. Sorry. Rick, they're in here. Sorry. Thank you. Yes, that's part of it. But something changes at the end of the Gospels that enables everyone who follows the Lord to have the Holy Spirit. What changed at the end of the Gospels? We entered from one era to another. Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, no, that's at the beginning of Acts. Yes, ma'am. And what about Jesus changes it all? Something happens at the end of every single one of the Gospels. We, we celebrate it on Good Friday and Easter. I'll just give it away. Right. 
That had to happen first. There was no way for the Holy Spirit to be given broadly across across all of the people of God without such life being purchased. In other words, in order to maintain the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, we will have to actually already have eternal life. Right? John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, addresses this reality. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that notice how exclusionary this actually is, that all those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's present tense. The moment we believe in him, we have everlasting life. This is why the Holy Spirit comes with that package deal. This is not some multiple separate things. The Holy Spirit is the life giver. He is the one through whom life comes, the one through whom life will continue to come. And so if we have everlasting life, we also have the everlasting Holy Spirit with us. There is no separation in the new covenant. There's no uh, working our way up to that. There's no training our way up to that. The reality is that as we have learned all the way through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life. Jesus references it himself. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all, he says in the Gospel of John. And in order for that to occur, Jesus must purchase us from death to life. Elsewise, in our dead state, we would only, for a time, maintain the Holy Spirit. And just like Saul, we would have that experience that David was concerned about. Remember this. Saul would go out, and then when he would sin, the Holy Spirit would be removed from him, and then an evil spirit replaced we don't want that. We don't want that experience. David, in the very next generation, was given as, as, as what will be the typical experience of all Christians a thousand years later. David, from the moment he was anointed to the moment of his death, had the Holy Spirit without interruption. Very unique in the Old Covenant because it was foreshadowing what was to come. But even that led to this frustration with David, who's constantly wrestling back and forth of seeing his own sinfulness under the Old Covenant, but then also seeing that he has the Holy Spirit, and it just... It's like this dichotomy that almost frustrates him to no end. Yes, Anne. Might you also say that the Holy Spirit was with him when he, he met the Philistines? Yes. Until he slayed them? I mean, yes. in other words, it was sporadic before he was anointed. It may have been so he was anointed before he met Goliath. Yeah. Yeah. His first story in the scriptures is him being anointed by Samuel. Samuel didn't even know his name. Uh, didn't even know he existed. In fact, so much so that Jesse, his father, didn't even bring him to the prophet. It was like, obviously, it's not him. He's, you know, the the garbage son. Here's all the good ones, right? And uh, so, no, that comes after. So, no, the Holy Spirit is fully involved in the story of Goliath. That's, that's a really fun one. Um, again, through death, life comes. And this is something that the Holy Spirit does throughout the scriptures. Um, and culminating, ultimately, in the sacrifice of Christ. Through death, life comes. And this is, this is what Jesus is, is preparing his disciples to see. Um, this will no longer be um, one prophet or maybe two at the same time that has the Holy Spirit. It will be all the people of God who have come to the Father through Christ. That is the age that's coming. And Jesus here is still in the Old Covenant talking about that transition that's about to happen. In order for that to happen, turn to Luke chapter 12, the very next chapter. In order for that to happen, there has to be a couple of things. One, you cannot just resist the Holy Spirit and think that you are going to follow the Father. This is going to be something very unique in the age to come. You cannot 
have life without the Holy Spirit anymore. This is what Jesus is going to start referencing. And what many people call the unpardonable sin, I hate that terminology, I will give you a new one today, um, uh, is stated here in Luke chapter 12, and we are going to talk about it. Obviously, in a class on the Holy Spirit, we got to talk about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, because that seems to be a very, very important point in the text, and yet it's spoken so quickly, and then passed over, and then continued on. And you're like, wait a second, there's a sin that will never be forgiven? Yes, that's true. Um, Luke chapter 12, we'll start in verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me, that's God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now that's, that's a struggle in Christology for another class. We're here for the Holy Spirit. Verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then he moves on to a different topic. Now, what questions arise in your mind instantly? Yes, ma'am. What's the difference? Yeah, what's the difference? What's the difference? That's a really good question. What is the difference? Any other questions? We're going to answer all these. Let's talk about the self-reflective one. Have I done this? That's the first question that was up in my mind the first time I read this passage. If there's a sin that will not be forgiven, I might want to know if I've committed it or not. Right? Yeah? Okay. What else? What other questions? Yes, ma'am. Why won't it be forgiven? Ooh, that's a really good question. And something that I wouldn't be surprised comes out of a 14-year-old. That's awesome. Yes, sir. Thank you. And it leads to so much confusion with people because if they don't have any grounding in what the Holy Spirit has been doing, this passage is confusing as all get out. Why is it that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, one, is different, and two, why is blasphemy against the Son of Man forgivable, but this one's not? That's a big, big question. What else? I was going to say, does this go back to the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord Partly, but the issue is that that would include in Jesus as well, because he is the second person of the Trinity. Right, so it partly includes that, but it's not sufficient, because the third commandment you will be forgiven of uh, in salvation. This is unique, and this is why I don't like calling it the unpardonable sin. One, because the scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say it's not able to be pardoned. It says God won't pardon it. That's very, very different. That's very different. So what is it? Yeah, so there's the question. What is unique about the Holy Spirit? What is unique about the Holy Spirit as, as contrasted with the ministry of the Son of Man? We're going to get some brain juices flowing because we, we got, we got, we're going to have to think this one through because this is one of the most misunderstood, and I will say most, most people who concern themselves about this concern themselves about this needlessly. And, and the only way to really work through it is to just work through it, brute force. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Let's start with that. The Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. In his incarnation, specifically. He was foretold in Daniel chapter 7 that the Son of Man, one who is like the Son of Man, will come. He has aspects of humanity, aspects of divinity. The Ancient of Days has him 
given a crown and a throne and all of these things and all the nations will be given to him. And yet he has all these human qualities. It was very confusing for people when that prophecy was given in Daniel 7. It's one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament. And people didn't understand how is it that one who has human qualities also has divine qualities. One who is obviously born of humans will also reign over all the heavens. There wasn't a clear teaching in the Old Testament with regards to this human divine character that is Jesus of Nazareth. And so it can be understood that there's a lot of confusion regarding him. There's a lot of confusion regarding Jesus of Nazareth. We still have it today. 2,000 years later, after having the New Testament, we still have people going around going, the clearest expression of God is Jesus of Nazareth in his incarnation. That's not true. That is divinity veiled. You want to see divinity unveiled, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Divinity unveiled is God the Holy Spirit giving life to his world. The only time that the Holy Spirit was veiled in any way whatsoever was during the baptism of Jesus Christ when he was in bodily form descending like a dove. Other than that, he shows up in word and work everywhere. All of the scriptures are written by him, right? The scriptures are not written by the Father, and the scriptures are not written by the Son. The scriptures are written by the Holy Spirit. All of the scriptures, all the miracles, the prophecies, the miracles of the prophets, all the works of Jesus of Nazareth in his entire ministry are all done by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his own power. If you reject the work, the word, and the influence of the Holy Spirit... What life is there outside of that? Absolutely nothing. And so it's not that there is this one instance of sin that if I accidentally do it on a random Tuesday, I will never see life. No, no, no. This is the ongoing, I will search for life anywhere except where God is explicitly giving it. That is a sin that will never be forgiven because you're looking for life somewhere else. And so what does he say here? Speaking a word against the Son of Man, that will be forgiven. Why? Because it's obvious that we can confuse him up. He had no form or comeliness by which we should desire him. He looked like any other person walking around. People were very confused about this. How is it that the God of the fire tornado above the tabernacle is also the God that just looks like one of us, son of Joseph, son of Mary, from Nazareth, walking around, able to you know build tables or houses or whatever it was that he actually did as a carpenter? Yeah, exactly. But we should, we should have seen aspects of this. God was humbling himself even in that fire tornado. But because it's so much higher than us, we don't actually think that that's God condescending to us. Anything and any time we run into the Lord, we are seeing God humbling himself to even communicate with us. And when we saw him in his incarnation, that was a very humble state indeed because he actually became one of us. And not just as a full-grown man, was born as one of us. Fully dependent on his parents. Fully dependent on someone else. Humans. Faulty humans. No matter what our Catholic friends say. Sinful humans as parents to raise him up. And then he was about his father's business by the time he was 12 years old. Is that just because of a natural knack he had? No. It's because of who he is. But then the second half of that verse, verse 10, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not 
be forgiven. It doesn't say they can't be forgiven. It says they won't be forgiven. Very, very important aspect. What Jesus is saying is, here comes an age wherein the word and the work of the Holy Spirit will be clear. To reject that, to call it the exact opposite of what you're working, uh, looking towards, which is what, by the way, in another context, it is what the Pharisees were doing. They had just witnessed Jesus healing a man born blind. And they say, that's, that's the work of Satan. And Jesus says, hang on a second. If, if you call that the work of Satan, you must understand there's no work greater than this. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. If you call that Satan and you continue in that, there is no recovery from this because that's the ultimate expression of life. It's the ultimate clarity. It would be similar to somebody coming up and saying, I serve the Lord, but I don't really care what the scriptures say and I don't really care about the miracles of Jesus. I'm sorry, you don't serve the Lord. Because serving the Lord involves the word and the work of the Holy Spirit, which are the scriptures and the miracles of God. And you say, well, what if someone's just wrong on that? They can be wrong on that. They can. There's a lot of people with wrong theology. But once presented with it clearly and consistently, and there's still an ongoing full-on rejection of it in a search for life somewhere else, that will not be forgiven. And so if you, as a Christian, I'll just put it on the uh, little concern side. There's a lot of Christians that worry that they could lose their salvation if they accidentally blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Let me just put that to rest. If you are worried about it, that is the main sign you haven't done it. Okay? Those who are at this point say, I don't care what word or what work is done in front of me. It will never be enough for me to submit myself to that. You see the difference? Yes, sir. At this point, some people feel that Jewish people are unsaved. Yes. <clears throat> the ones they, Jesus was talking they, to that day certainly were. They do not believe that Christ was, was the Son of God. So, um, uh, there's multiple sides to that question. The ones that Jesus was talking to here certainly were guilty of this. And these were the Pharisees that were there expressing their, I'm never going to believe this. And, and the Gospels continue to bear that out. Even though they knew Jesus was risen from the dead, they still paid the soldiers to lie. Right? I mean, so they, even if someone rose from the dead, they're not going to believe. There is, there, we are beyond where they will be ever convinced. Um, and uh, when, when they... Um, as we go along through history, obviously Romans chapter 11 addresses what you're asking about directly. Um, there does come a time. Now, I'm not going to lump all the Jewish people into a full rejection of the gospel. That's not true. There's plenty of Jewish people that have come to salvation in Christ. But there is no salvation outside of Christ in the New Covenant. And so if you reject what is the true Messiah, we'll actually talk about this this morning uh, in the service. There's a lot of overlap here for some reason. Um, but there, um, there certainly are Jews today that have come to a knowledge and a saving knowledge of Christ, uh, but the vast majority have not. Uh, and according to Romans 11, we'll, that will continue in that way until the end of the world, um, which is a really interesting thing. Um, but I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily because of this, um, though for some it certainly is. There's some who, it doesn't matter how much evidence would ever be presented would, would have rejected entirely. It, it's it's kind of like Jesus saying, there is a point of no return. 
when it, when it comes to unbelief. If you reject every word and every work that the Holy Spirit has ever done, what else is ever going to turn you to the Lord? And, and that, that really, it's more of a positive statement in the fact of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the New Covenant. He is the one that's bringing the world to Christ and through Christ to the Father. And because of that, this is actually good news. And everyone always thinks the, the, the story of the, of the, the unforgiven sin is bad news. It's only bad news for those who are perishing. This is great news for those of us who have eternal life because we know that the Holy Spirit does not lose those whom he saves, neither does the Son and neither does the Father. We're not actually capable of this sin as redeemed people. It should be a great comfort, to be perfectly honest, um, but not many people really focus on it that way. Do you have a question or a point to make? Yes. Great. Um, how could you tell? <laughs> you sat up and looked at me. <laughs> Um, you know, we are, we are all once there, if you think about this. In ignorance, yes. yes. The difference is, when the ignorance is washed away, are we still there? Correct. Yeah, right. And, and, and so, um, it, if that's the case, then um, without true repentance and coming to the knowledge of Christ, they would still be there, but mm-hmm. um, there is forgiveness with, even though I've done that myself, but have asked Christ to come into my life and ask for complete repentance and forgiveness of, right. of that. I think that just to, so how would you deal with that? How would you handle that? What, what would that? And that's why in the definition of, I said, it's the ongoing unbroken rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit both in word and work, Um, because, uh, yes, as unbelievers, we are all in a similar camp uh, at the beginning. But at one point in repentance, we proved ourselves not to be part of the ongoing camp of that. Uh, In shorthand, I don't like talking about this specific thing in shorthand because everyone shortchanges it. But in shorthand, this is just the sin of unbelief forever. Right. So... Uh, it doesn't matter what Jesus would do. In fact, there was multiple points, remember, in his ministry where he was in a town and then he's like, you know what? No more works for you. Right. No more signs or wonders. I'm out. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. You, you don't want that as part of your hometown. Um, why? Because they were, rejection, they were rejecting even the clearest signs. And Jesus even says to three of the towns, um, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, he says, If the works that I just did in your town were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they all would have repented in dust and ashes. But you haven't repented at all. And then he pronounces woes on them, which is judgment, and then leaves. That's brutal. The reality is, and then he actually says, at the judgment day, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up against this generation for what they've rejected. That's intense. Because the reality is, ever since Jesus' incarnation and then the, then the first aspects of the apostolic age, we have not seen miracles and works of the Holy Spirit like that since. And we can all argue to, forever and a day whether some of the charismatic gifts still exist at some points and somewhere in the world. I don't even care. What I care about is they're not normative. They're not plain. They're not out in front of us. How many of you have seen someone risen from the dead? A man born blind instantly gains sight without any information whatsoever, without any 
work whatsoever. Somebody who is paralyzed, whose back was shattered, instantly better. We don't see miracles like that. They were being done in front of their face and they say, Psst. That's why Jesus was like, when I tell this man that his sins are forgiven of you, they go, Whoa, no one can forgive sins but God. And he's like, you know what? I'll tell you what. Which is easier, to just be able to say that or to be able to tell him to get up and walk? This paralyzed man that you all know from birth. Sounds great. Get up and walk. And what does he say? So that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. In other words, that you may know that I am God, not only my word, but my work. Here it is in front of you. And they still rejected him. Where are you to go after that? There's nothing that's ever going to convince you. Yes, sir. Are you familiar with the passage in the New where Christ is talking with a centurion who has helped him to escape from Herod? And the centurion has seen all these miracles. And he says to the centurion, do you believe? And the centurion says, I'm trying. And Jesus says, you've seen all this, and it's still hard for you to believe. How hard do you think it is for someone who hasn't seen? See, that's why I don't like movies like that, because that's wrong. Jesus says it's actually a blessing to not have seen it. He says it to Thomas. He says, you believe because you've seen. You believe that I'm risen from the dead because you've seen and you've put my hand, you know, hand inside, all these kind of things. He says, you believe because you've seen. He says, blessed are those who believe who have never seen. In other words, there's actually a specific gift that's given to those who did not personally witness this. They are not actually in a better stance to have witnessed it eyewitness-wise. We actually are. That's exactly what John says, and what Jesus is saying in the upper room a week after the resurrection is, it's not harder to believe. Belief is impossible without God. There's not a matter of how much are we convinced or how literal are we convinced. It's not about that. When you came to salvation in Christ, did you know everything about Jesus' incarnation and resurrection and the intricacies of of the economic trinity? Do you still know any of that? No. We know pieces of that, bits of that. It's not about being convinced about every aspect about this. That is absolutely impossible. It is about, I have found life. I do not understand how he does it. Let, let me just tell you what my salvation uh, prayer was. You know, after all of those VBS prayers that I was told saved me and I knew they didn't do a thing. Let me tell you what my prayer was when I was 11 years old and it was about three in the morning. God, I don't know how you save people but I know I need it. Please do so. That was it. I didn't sit here and wax eloquent about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how convinced I am of it or confessions that I had or any such thing. I just knew God had the answer and I didn't. That's it. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is I have the answer God won't. No matter what he shows me, no matter what he says, no matter what he does in front of me, he could raise somebody from the dead and I still won't believe him. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's the Holy Spirit who's doing those things. That is why I always emphasize not a single miracle of Christ is done without the Holy Spirit. That's important because it shows us that it is the Holy Spirit who is showing us what life is like. We're not just showing the deity of Christ by healing a blind man. No. We're showing what real life is like. The senses are part of life. It's part of our, the image of God. Why is it we can see? Because we are made in the image of the one who sees all things. Why is it we can hear? Because he hears us. 
That, that's the whole aspect of in him was life, in God was life, and through the Holy Spirit, that life has come to the children of man. And especially in the age that was coming after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, now that life has been purchased through death, again, it's how the Holy Spirit works in multiple situations, Goliath, the flood, all of that, through death will come life. In Christ we have found this, and now, now as we come to the new era, known as the church age, the one that you and I reside in, the Holy Spirit will actually come to everyone who has this life. Not just a prophet here, an apostle there. Every single one of them. Now, we're so used to that, we don't hear how overwhelming of a promise that is. Moses had wished for that, didn't he? Back in Numbers when we talked about this. When when the Holy Spirit was going from him to the 70 elders, and then there was two other elders of, of the people that were still back in the camp that were too afraid to come to the tent of meeting. The Holy Spirit still went to them, and they were prophesying in the camp. What did Joshua do? He comes up to Moses. Moses, tell him to shut up. They're doing stuff, and it's, det- it's detracting from your ministry. And what did Moses say? Don't stop them. I wish that all the people of God would have the Holy Spirit. That wish of Moses from 1,500 years ago as we're about to see, is being promised at the end of the ministry of Jesus. And people are starting to wonder, how is it that this happens? How is it this is going to occur? And he's setting them up to listen for it. Yes, sir? I'm not sure if this is exactly in it. Mm-hmm. But when I was a young kid, I experienced what I believe is the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and rejected it. And later on, I find that it was the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It just literally scared the tar out of me. <laughs> okay. Because he spoke to me and said, I'm here. Okay. And I went and did my own thing. I didn't go back to church for quite a while after that. Because it, you know, it was something I wasn't used to. Sure. I didn't know any, I did know a little bit, but I wasn't sure. Right. So I went and did my own thing for a while. Mm-hmm. And I kept hearing the same voice same voice, saying the same thing. I am here. Awesome. And then what did it culminate with? Your salvation, yes? Yes. yes. That's what led me to right. salvation. You know, I knew, I, I knew some stuff because I was only a young boy. As somebody who has never experienced that, but I have known many Christians who have expressed similar instances, um, that's something that I can't account for or fully understand. But what I can say is this. The Holy Spirit will use anything, anything to teach his word and work. Even a donkey. Even a donkey, right? Uh, what, what is it Martin Luther said once? He actually referenced that passage in Numbers uh, where he says, you know, uh, God once spoke through the mouth of an ass, and I feel like he's about to do so again. He said that right through his sermon. <laughs> he said that right before he preached the sermon. <laughs> But uh, that that kind of thing as well. It's you know some some things are affected in this world through little butterfly effects that we do not understand and we cannot anticipate. Uh, the color of someone's shirt can can begin a, a thought process that 
ends up with you being convinced of something you weren't before. I mean, there's, there's things we cannot possibly anticipate, which is one of the great things. I'm very glad we're not in charge of the outcomes of evangelism because we're done for. We can't possibly know how to do that, which is why when evangelism is done in a way that, well, here, here's the eight steps to convince an atheist to become a Christian and uh, be, you know, be part of a local church. None of that's going to ever work. Why? Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit that does these things. Or it's your work. And you should be very scared of that because you're messing with promises that you don't have any right to give, right? Imagine this, for instance, if we just teach somebody how to behave like a Christian and then we give them all the promises and then give them assurances that they truly are Christians because they're acting like one of us when those promises are not being actually appended to their lives. Can you think of something more dangerous? I can't. I can't lulling somebody into a complacency with regards to the relationship with the Lord when they know it's not real. Ouch. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus makes no bones about this stuff. He just goes, there's going to be a lot of people coming to me on the last day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this and this? Notice what their focus is. It's not Christ. It's not anything else. It's what they've done. And he's like, I, I didn't know you. I had no relationship with you whatsoever. How is it that that relationship comes? It is only through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the things that really drives me nuts when people separate salvation in the new covenant from the giving of the Holy Spirit. You can't separate life from the life giver. It does not work like that. Either God is saving you through Christ, through the gifted Holy Spirit, or he's not. There is no separation there in the scriptures. There's no multiple baptisms of this. I know know that's taught broadly, but it's not taught in scripture. That's one of the issues with this. When we come to this, so for instance, the very next two verses after this here, we're still in Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. When they bring you, and here he's speaking, then he turns and speaks to his disciples. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, don't, don't go out and go, oh, I don't have to study the scriptures. I get all the answers by just sitting. No, 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 no. No. What he is saying to them is the reality that you're not going to be alone when you're in persecution. Not one of you who are truly my disciples are going to be alone in persecution. The Holy Spirit will go with you everywhere. Even before the authorities and the rulers, even when you're trying to defend your own life, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you ought to say. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going to have a very, very intimate relationship with my disciples. Now, if you were one of his disciples that day, what's the question on your mind? When are we getting that? That sounds amazing, right? That, that's an incredible thing, that, that God himself... The spirit who spoke through the prophets will now speak through every single one of the disciples of Jesus. That's amazing. And the question on their mind will be, um, so where do we sign up for that? So turn to John 14. Turn to John 14. Now... We are working through a, you know, somewhat short walk through the Gospel of John in the uh, in the morning services. Um, believe me, I've seen longer ones. Um, 
we won't get to John 14 for another several months, but uh, when we get there, I think one of the things that's going to be kind of overwhelming is seeing the intersection of who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is and what they are doing together. Uh, really just remarkable stuff. Um, but here we do zoom forward uh, to John 14. I know we're only in John 8 in the morning service, but um, you should be able to see it. John 14, verse 15, we'll start. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, stop. Tall order? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, one would say impossible, right? Now, not only do we have the law of God that we know has moral codes, even written in the ceremonial things, right? You're not going out, I promise, I hope. You're not trying to uh, offer sacrifices of a goat with trimming the fat off the tail in certain ways and all these other things that are in the laws, right? But in there are teachings about God and his relationship to mankind and the nature of his holiness. All of those things were still held accountable for. And here, what does he say? His commandments. If you truly love me, Jesus says to his people, you will keep my commandments. The first thing that should arise in your head is, I can't do all that. Every time I try, I fail. Every time I make up my mind that I will do this without end, that I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that I will love my neighbor as myself, and that I will love Christ and keep his commandments, how many of you fail on this on a daily basis? Yep. But. I can do all things through Christ. Thank you. And verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper. Following the commandments of Christ and loving Christ is the stuff of life. It is not the stuff of death. The stuff of this world is death. You want to try to follow the law in your own strength. What are we taught in Galatians and Romans without any debate? You try to follow the law in your own strength, what happens? You die. The law kills. Not because the law is bad. The law is great. There's nothing wrong in the law of God. There's nothing to apologize for. There's nothing detracting from it. No, it was showing us who God is and by contrast, not comparison, by contrast, who we are. It's primarily a mirror. And if Christ looks into the mirror, what does he see? Perfection. If we look into the law as fallen people, what do we see? We see a death warrant. Do these things and you will live. And then we try and we fail. And as Romans says, while it promised life, it proved to be death to us. And so how is this going to work in the new covenant? Ezekiel has promised that the Spirit of God will be given to the people of God and he will write his law on their hearts. That's what the new covenant is going to look like. And Jesus here is saying, that's coming. Anticipate it. Here, they're literally walking up to the upper room. We're we're, we're nearing that section of his ministry here in John 14. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give another helper, capital H, in your Bibles. If it's not capital H, scratch it out and write capital H, helper. This is referring to the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he will be with you forever. How, how many times have you heard that and just kind of glossed over it? Really? 
verse 17. Then he defines who this helper will be that will always be with the people who love Christ, the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him or knows him. They have rejected his works and his words. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, there's so many things that were just said about the Holy Spirit. It's really overwhelming. Let's start at the end of that verse. He dwells with you. That's referring to the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. He's here with you right now. You are hearing from him this moment, and he will be in you. Yeah. There's something coming that's going to change the way that people who trust in the Lord for their salvation will change entirely for the rest of time. Jesus was not trying to accomplish something, failed, got put to death, and then God was like, oh, okay, plan B, I'll just kind of make this work. No, this was always the plan. This was always the plan, that there was coming a time when life is purchased through death that the Holy Spirit would be given to all the people who serve the Lord, no matter ethnicity, no matter language, no matter creed or color or anything. None of it matters. Why? Because in Christ, who made all people, the dividing wall of separation has been shattered. Which means Jewish people have no direct access to the Father outside of Christ. And neither do we. We all come through Christ. There's only one name under heaven by which people may be saved. And so he says, the Holy Spirit currently dwells with you, but soon he will be in you. A complete reversal of things. And so we start to see this anticipation of the disciples as they are trying to wrap their heads around what Jesus is even teaching them. How, how can such a thing be? How is it that the Holy Spirit is going to be in us? How is it that we can keep Christ's commandments? It is only through the Spirit of truth. You're not going to dig down deep into your soul and go, you know what, I have what it takes. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, I got it. When he says, be like the good Samaritan, I got it. I'll figure it out. When he says, go out, and and he reiterates the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I got that. Love your neighbor as yourself, I got that. Don't commit adultery, I got that. And what does Jesus do in this Sermon on the Mount, for instance? Something I'm writing on right now in my dissertation. He takes all those commandments and throws them in their face. You think that you're good because you haven't committed adultery? Have you thought lustfully? He's pointing out the failures of mankind, even in the intentions, are just as damning. Well, I didn't murder anyone. Yeah? You hated somebody? That's not the stuff of life. That's the stuff of death. And it will drag you down to the grave if you try to fix it yourself. What does he say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? The one who hears my words, again, it always comes back to words and works. The one who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Not like the fool who built it on the sand. The sand is any other word and work you want to base your trust and hope in. I was talking to somebody just this week who was basing a lot of their solidity in their supposed Christian life on random miracles that they heard were taking place somewhere in the world. I said, you don't need that. 
Pick up your scriptures and see the words and works that your hope should actually depend on. Not some random claim of some faith healer in Zambia. Don't do that. If God's working over there, it's of no concern to me. God's word and his works are enough. And if it's not, that is concerning. Deeply concerning. Because that's what God has given you. And so this is one of the things I asked this person. I said, have you actually seen any of that? That you're claiming to be a second-hand eyewitness to? Well, no. I said, then your trust is depending on the words of another. Not Christ. Not the Holy Spirit. And you can't verify a thing. That's not how this works. No pun intended. What does Jesus promise in verse 18? I will not leave you as orphans. An orphan would be the equivalent of somebody who is saying, here's the law, here's the way of life, good luck. We'll end up in the gutter. We don't have the ability to do that. And so he says, no, I, I, I will not leave you as orphans. I will indeed come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Again, the attachments of life and how this is actually going to bear out and how these things will continue He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, that takes a long time to pick apart. I'm not going to do it today. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A lot is still there, yes. Verse 22, Judas. (laughs) What an unfortunate name every time uh, you come in here. Judas, not Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? What will make your relationship with us unique? Jesus answered him, says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and he will come to him and make our home, or excuse me, we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. In other words, you cannot claim to be following the father, but not be following me. You cannot be claiming to follow me and not follow the Father. That's what Marcion was doing in the early church, earliest heresy. We'll follow Jesus, but not the God of the Old Testament. He says, nope, doesn't work like that. And if you're claiming to follow the God of Israel and you don't follow me, you're not following the God of Israel. He and I say the same things. He and I do the same works. He and I interact with you through the same spirit. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your remembrance all that I have said to you. By the way, there you have a clue as to how the Gospels were written. It is not through the skill of man alone. It is through the life-giving word of the Holy Spirit through which these things came. How difficult is that to understand? Thoroughly. I still don't understand it. I've studied it for many, many years. How the Holy Spirit actually inspired Scripture is, is something that we're just not told a great deal of uh, details. On. We've got a couple of them, but not, not enough to figure it out. But here he's expressing the reality that, that all of these things that Jesus has said will come back to their remembrance through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now here he is addressing his disciples who are there presently with him directly with regards to how they will be giving the commandments of Christ to the world and by extension, through the scriptures. Because they are present, hearing that, are people like Matthew, and people like Peter, through whom his testimony was the Gospel of Mark written, and people like John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who was also there that day. All of these things 
are being promised in, in this anticipatory sense. There's coming a time where this is all going to change. There's coming a moment in time where it will not just be me that you're interacting with. It will be something far greater. It will be the Holy Spirit in you. It's not just that I'm here with you. In fact, <clears throat> Jesus actually makes claim to the reality that it's far better for his disciples that Jesus leave so that the Holy Spirit come. How many Christians actually hold to that? Would you rather the Holy Spirit living with you, in you, or Jesus of Nazareth sitting in this room right now, doing miracles, healing blind people, healing the paralyzed people, raising the dead? Which would you rather? <coughs> Jesus tells us the far better one is the Holy Spirit living in us. Do we have that view? And if not, how can we get there? How can we appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit to that level? And I, I argue that Christians get so used to having the Holy Spirit that we are not really used to what it is without Him. Yes, absolutely. It seems like when you're comparing with Jesus to the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. with having Jesus, and as you just said, would you rather ha which would you rather have? Present well, in this room, yeah. Present in this room. Well, if we have the faith, of having, we know what Jesus has done, mm -hmm. and seeing the miracles, does that mean that we would still need the proof? But if we have the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. that's something more tangible. That's correct. So. That's correct. Uh, the reality is that our very belief in this age is contingent on the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So let, let, me, let me lay this out a little bit, because we, we tend to think so flippantly about faith. We just think it's like agreeing with something or something like this. So let me, let me lay out how the Bible actually puts this out. You cannot think your way up to faith. No matter how much you learn about God, it is not possible. You cannot work your way up to it. Faith is a gift. It is given to those whom God desires to give it to. Now, how is it that that faith works itself out? Is that the first thing to happen to someone whom God is saving? No, it's the second this is called the order of salvation. The first is called regeneration. It is where somebody passes from death to life. <coughs> it is God calling out to Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. Now, his faith is believing that word, and his works are then walking out of the tomb. But I don't care how many times you command a corpse to come out of its tomb, it ain't happening unless you first bring it to life. This is what's depicted there. Same thing happens with salvation. God brings us to life and the first thing we do is trust him because that's what the new life is. So faith is not something you can just keep on convincing a corpse to walk. Just It's so easy. You're just talking to a pile of bones, right? It's so easy. All you have to do is just stand up and take a step. What's going to happen? Absolutely nothing, unless God is doing it. That was the whole point of the Valley of Dry Bones with Ezekiel. The Word of God can do this. You can't do it, right? <clears throat> if Ezekiel went to that valley on any other day and just sit there and from his own words and from his own works, tried to like build them back together and like, you know, some, some tape to hold the femurs, you know, to the, you know, all this stuff, and try to get him like, okay, okay, go, go walk. What's going to happen? <sighs> nothing. Because faith is not something we can gift to people. 
God must bring them to life first. And that life naturally, excuse me, supernaturally, will trust the one who rose them to life again. That is how salvation truly works. Faith is not something where we just go, I'm going to convince this person to have faith in Christ. You can't do that. Do not do evangelism that way. You will be very, very disappointed and very, very frustrated. Or you will convince somebody that they, just through agreeing that something happened, just, you know, like the demons believe, that they have life. That's not how it works. The demons know that God is one. Convincing somebody that God exists is not enough. Convincing someone that Jesus is the Messiah is not enough. Convincing that he was dead, buried, and risen from the dead is not enough. All the rulers in Jerusalem knew that. They knew it with their own eyes. And so what is Jesus saying to Thomas, for instance, because this has already come up. You believe because you've seen it. Your own eyes have seen it. There is a special blessing where we are not distracted by our experience alone. To say, this is true because I verified it, which is where Thomas was at. We say, this is true because God said it. This is true because God did it. And even if it makes me a fool, that's where I stand. That is a special blessing. That is a unique relationship with the Lord. At the end of chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, I want you to see how intertwined the purposes and the jobs of the persons of the Trinity are. They are all three of them involved at all points. And what does he say here? The outcome of this is you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the very beginning. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. There is no separating their purposes. There's no... There's no saying, well, the son was trying to do this and the father was trying to do that and I guess the father's stronger or something. No, 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 no. They are all the three of them working together in perfect harmony to bring about the salvation of his people. How is it that they're going to believe? The spirit of truth will bear witness about me. And he says, you know what? You guys have also seen all of these things. You will also bear witness about me. Yeah, you're the eyewitnesses. There was a purpose for the apostles. They were to add to the witnesses, not just of the Spirit, not just of the Father calling out from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, but also his apostles, his disciples, that they will actually be able to bear witness that, yes, indeed, we saw the work and the word of God here in front of us. Don't forget you're in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. This is something that goes back before the world was. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. If you're going to reject that Word, you will not find life. And there's a perfect unanimity between where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are using that Word and the works that the Holy Spirit has done, both in the life of Christ and now, by extension, when we get there in the the book of Acts, by the works in the life of his Christians. The Holy Spirit is still bringing his word and his work to the eyes of the people of this world. Which means our trusting in Christ and our 
loving these things is part of the proclamation of the gospel. We need to preach with words, but we also preach with works. Why? Because that's where the Holy Spirit constantly works on us. Now, works is not just following the law. That is part of it. But we will get into the New Testament. For the Christian, what are the works of God in our life? It's not left up for debate. He tells us explicitly what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. A lot of us turn it into, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not doing this bad thing, and the culture is not doing this bad thing. It's having a good reputation. Eh, it's those, but it's so much more than that. It's all the way down to the center core of who we are. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And when we get there, we're going to get to see this, this blossoming of understanding of how it is that God is working on his people. He is not working on them only in doing outward things. Anyone can change outward things. Who can change the heart? Who can make mankind love one another and have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? You ever wonder why Paul says against these, there is no law? Why does he say that? He says, this is something far deeper and far grander. This is not against the law in any way. This is actually establishing the law of God in our hearts that what comes out of us is not just natural stuff. It is the Holy Spirit working in us, and we don't take credit for that. We say thank you, because what is the chief thing it makes us is grateful. Grateful. And you want a, you want a good barometer of your Christian life and health? How grateful are you to God for what he's doing in your life? Even in times of suffering may I say, especially in times of suffering. Let's stop there. We don't have time for chapter 16. I would love it if we could. Uh, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this day. We're thankful, Father, that you have gifted us another day, and on this day you have seen it in your grace to have beautiful weather and uh, attentive ears and your word here open in front of us. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your work in our life. We pray that we become more and more grateful for it as the days go on. Uh, would you please, we pray, bless our time together as we join together as a church uh, here in the next hour. We thank you for it. We look forward to it in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right.